The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. Last week we began the actual summons to satisfaction. Initially, the call is seek the Lord together in order to avoid punishment. That's not the culminating call, though. The culminating call is wait for the Lord in order to enjoy satisfaction. We're heading in that direction. Right now, though, we are in chapter 2, and last week we got through verse 3, and the call was clear. If you're among those who are not desiring God, or as the ESV translated it, shameless nation, if you're part of that group, then change. And do it in a united fashion. Judgment day is coming. And God does not want you to be alone. He wants you to find your heart upheld in the context of community. A community of equally committed, surrendered believers who are trusting in God alone for the forgiveness of their sins and the fulfillment of all of His promises, even that He would raise up the Deliverer who alone could restore and help. Isaiah 53 has already been um, revealed to the people of God by the time we get to Zephaniah. The suffering servant is already known. And not only his suffering, but his triumph is already Known. The day of the Lord is like a sacrifice, we were told in chapter 2, verse, chapter 1, verse 7. And that day of the Lord is coming. So seek the Lord together. Not just gather together, but seek the Lord. If you're humble, seek deeper levels of humility. If you're keeping the commandments of God right now, continue to do so, working for love of neighbor. And then we come to The section we're going to focus on right now. And a basis for the call to seek the Lord is given. A basis is like a reason. There's an initial reason, and it's as if Zephaniah, all of a sudden, he, he says this initial reason, and I want us to think about what it's for, and then he steps back and it sends him into this twofold digression where he expounds on this reason. So look with me at chapter 2, verse 3, and then I'm just going to read directly into verse 4. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do His just commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. For Gaza shall be deserted and Ashkelon shall become a desolation. Ashdod's people shall be driven out at noon, and Ekron shall be uprooted. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, because I'm going to destroy the Philistines. That's strange to me. But that's what he says. That that word for, at the beginning of verse 4, says that verse 4 is the basis or the reason why all of The the true humble of the land should seek the Lord. 
Seek the Lord because four of the Philistine cities listed from south to north are all going to be wiped out. And we get this whole series of words that are connected with them. Desertion, desolation, expulsion, uprooting. Cities are deserted. Places are made desolate. And then people are kicked out. And people are uprooted. And so there's these four cities, very well known from the Old Testament, that provide an example of how God's judgment is going to come really, really close. So, you've got towns and peoples, and how close? Well, we see it here. You've got Gaza. Gaza shall be deserted. Ashkelon shall become a desolation. Ekron's people shall be driven out. And no, wait. Ashdod's people and then Ekron. So they're listed south to north. And they're four of the five main Philistine cities. And constantly, peoples from these cities were pushing into Judah. Remember, Israel is no more in the time of Zephaniah. It's already gone. So all that's left of God's people is right here in Judah. And he he starts by saying, um, Seek the Lord, humble people, because my judgment's going to come to Philistia. And then as we're going to see, it's, it's like he, he steps back and is going to talk more broadly. But when I look and I say, what's going on here? Can you guys think of a reason? He's talking to Judah. Why should Judah seek the Lord? Because God's wrath is going to hit Philistia. What, why argue that way? He starts out by getting the wrath of God extremely close. In fact, you can't get any closer. And then in verse 3, as you already noted, perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. The question is, is it going to cross the border? When God's wrath comes, is it going to cross the border? And chapter 1 already told us to expect it. But I think that's that's the sense we get, is that God's wrath is going to get so near, you're not going to be able to run away. There's only one thing that can hide you. And and what I want you to see is at this point, he seems to step back. His argument is going to pause for a second. Verse 5 begins with a word, a very familiar word in the prophets. In the ESV, it's translated what? Woe. So this isn't happy days. Andy Nacelli had never even heard of Happy Days. I'm like, whoa. Okay, so Arthur Fonzarelli, right? Whoa. You know, I should have worn my white, ter- my white shirt today. Um, no, it's not that, is it? This is the kind of deep-seated grief. This is lament, whoa. 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 And you see it in three... In 2, verse 5, and then you're going to see it again in chapter 3, verse 1. Do you see it there? Chapter 3, verse 1, woe. 
in chapter 2, it opens to, dis- to declare the lamentable state and fate, the lamentable state and fate of the rebels from all the foreign nations. And it's going to overview four of them, four different groupings rather, five nations, four groupings. And then in chapter 3, that woe introduces an oracle against Jerusalem. So you'll remember back in chapter 1, it started globally. The judgment's going to be on all the world. Then it focused in on Jerusalem. Then in the next stage, it focused on Jerusalem. Then it went big again. And now here, following that pattern, it starts broad, God's judgment. And then it's going to narrow all the way in on Jerusalem. And what I'm suggesting is that the basis is first stated, the reason why they need to seek the Lord is first given in verse 4. Seek the Lord because judgment is coming on Philistia. And then he pauses, and then he just expounds on that. So what we really get is, seek the Lord because judgment is coming on all of your neighbors, and judgment is coming on you. So he starts in one direction, and then he backs up, and then he says, Whoa, whoa, do you feel the weightiness of the state and the fate of all the the neighbors that surround you? Whoa, do you feel the state and the fate of yourself? And then he'll get back into his argument in chapter 3, verse 8, with a therefore. So chapter There's a command given in chapter 2, verse 3. Do this. Seek the Lord. Because, and then, therefore, wait on the Lord. That's the logic of the passage. Seek the Lord because, and because this is true, therefore, wait on the Lord. So the two imperatives, the two groupings of imperatives in the book, in chapter 2, verses 1 and 3, In chapter 3, verse 8, those are the two groupings of the imperatives, and they're they're held together by this um, grounding reason that reaches backward and reaches forward. The very least consequential. And then, but, but the twist is that he doesn't only leave it in the consequential, like he's going to judge the nations because of their sin with the result that you're going to feel some of the wind and the waves. No, he's going to judge you too. It's like the punishment is coming on you too. Like you might not think you're in the center, but believe me, you're in the center. Notice how this, how this works. I'm going to put up another map here. So who do you read about? I'm just going to give a big picture here. Who do you read about in chapter 2, verses 5 through 7? What, what group? Yeah, some different names. Cherethites. That's another word for the Philistines, elsewhere. But then they're called specifically the Philistines. So they, they're, they're covering one group, and they are a neighbor to the west. Let me see here. One, I know I have... Okay. So we've got a neighbor to the west. Then, who do you see in the verses 8 through 11? Okay, and who are, who are these people? Moab and Ammon. You know them from earlier in the Bible. Not simply as sustained enemies against Israel, which they were, but they go all the way back to Genesis. Anybody remember where they came from? Lot. Okay, so 
Lot was who? Lot was who? Yes. Abraham's nephew. So we've got Judah, who was Abraham's great-grandson. Okay? He was one of Jacob's 12 sons, and he's become a tribe. And now that's all that's left. Judah is the country. And then you have Ammon and Moab, who are the people groups descended from Lot. Now you remember that fishy situation. We'll talk more about that. But Lot had two daughters, right? And they got kicked out of the land they were really wishing they could stay in. They get their father drunk. One night, second night, each of the sisters... They each get pregnant from their father, Lot, and they each have a child. One, Moab, the other, Ammon. Now, that story plays into the saga here in the prophecy because the very people who were delivered out of Sodom and Gomorrah and then gave rise to Moab and Ammon, they're going to see reversal and they're going to become like Sodom and Gomorrah, says the text. So now you've got closest neighbor to the west, cousins, extended cousins to the east. Think about a compass. So here's Judah. You've got Philistia to the east, sorry, to the west. You've got Moab and Ammon to the east. Then who do you get in um, verses 12 through 15? Cush and Assyria. Now, it's strange that Cush is mentioned because they are one of the most southern people groups on the planet in this day. They're... The image of, they are, that's the title given to Black Africa, ancient Ethiopia. It was located in roughly modern Sudan. But what's striking is that Kush was a small people group. Usually, when you hear about the big country in the south, who do you hear about? Egypt. You hear about Egypt. And what's intriguing here is that in the period, from Hez- around the time of Hezekiah, Cush became, Cush from the south overcame Egypt. And so you enter into what's known as the Egyptian, I'm sorry, the Cushite dynasty of Egypt. So I think that that's what we're speaking to, is that they mention Cush because Cush has become Egypt. So now we're talking about an imperial, massive empire to the south. They too are going or have been judged. And then, what's the final people group? There's there's these groupings. Philistia is on its own, then Moab and Ammon, and then Cush and Assyria is mentioned. So, just change the map because I have to reach way up to Assyria. So here's Israel, and you would really, now that Judah is all that's left, you'd bring the name down to here. Philistia... Ammon, Moab, 
Egypt Cush to the south, and Assyria in the north. And I think very intentionally, Zephaniah is trying to build a compass of judgment around Judah. So that they feel it's not going to miss your neighbors, and it's not going to miss even the major superpowers that surround you. Now, one striking element to me is that in this book, where Assyria is already on the way down and there's another superpower on the way up, that superpower is never mentioned at all in this book. Who's the superpower? Babylon. And it's the time frame, it's very strange. In Zephaniah's contemporary, Jeremiah, they're preaching at the same time. Jeremiah is loaded with mentions of the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. And the only thing I can think of right now is why doesn't Zephaniah mention the Babylonians? Because I anticipate he knew them. Assyria is on the way down, and the point is they're going to be destroyed. If God can destroy Egypt as he does, think about how Nahum, the prophet, argues. Assyria, you're so proud up there, you think you're not going to be touched? Well, look at Thebes was exalted. Thebes in Egypt was highly exalted, and God brought them down. Who are you to think that you're not going to be touched? And so this is a text against pride. God's building a compass of judgment. But why doesn't he mention Babylon? I think probably, I think, I think probably so that Judah doesn't, doesn't, think that Babylon is their biggest problem. Babylon is only an agent. Their biggest problem is God. He won't even put them to to his lips because their sin is against Yahweh. Babylon is merely agent of judgment who's going to come and take down Jerusalem. But The one whose arm is against them is not Babylon's arm. They are merely the sword in the hand of the living God. And it's against this living God that they have sinned. So we have this frame that's being shaped. And let me just make a few points. We'll pick up here next week. Let me just make a few points. Draw attention to a few verses. In chapter 2, verses 5 through 7, there's no mention of any sin that the Philistines have done. No explicit sin is mentioned. So it may be that we're just supposed to recall the whole history of Israel. We see the name and everyone knows what's at stake. What's intriguing is that this is the first explicit place Well, remember that perhaps, perhaps you may be hidden if you seek the Lord. Look at verse 7 in chapter 2, and notice what you see that answers the perhaps. What do you see there? You see a remnant. This is, so you recall the remnant of Baal that stuck out in Jerusalem? That is the ironic way to use the term remnant. Through the prophets, remnant is usually a positive term. 
for that small group who are seeking the Lord now, who will actually make it through judgment unto triumph. And the remnant here, where do they get to possess? Are they getting to possess turf in Judah? Where's the remnant going to be? Philistia. Automatically, we should be thinking, okay, there's something bigger going on here. The people of God are going to be moving globally. God had called Abraham, well, sorry, before Abraham, Adam, to fill the earth as imagers of God. And the day was, was awaiting, they were, they were looking forward to the day when that final king would rise who would possess the enemy gates. And all of a sudden, in Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 7, I see that, oh, there's going to be a remnant of God-honoring people who are actually going to be dwelling in the towns, in the houses of the Philistines. You remember that the Canaanites, who were in Judah originally, one of the commands was that you will go in and dispossess all the Canaanites, their houses... Don't destroy their houses because you're going to dwell in them. Don't wipe out their vineyards because you're going to eat from them. You're going to drink water from the wells that they dug. But now all of a sudden that promise is going broader. This is, I think, a hope that is aligning with the vision of all of Scripture that the day would come when God's kingdom would begin to go global. We're seeing a hint of it right here. Now, there's a problem that's mentioned. Look at verse 8 and verse 10. What is the problem that God is targeting? And then we also see it, the same problem, in verse 15. So look at verse 8, verse 10, and verse 15. What's the common thread that we see as sin among these foreign nations? Pride and boasting. Specifically, in verses 8 through 11, how is it showing its face? It's not just pride against God, but it's pride that's showing its face how? Against others. So you're actually, Moab and Ammon, and we'll we'll look at this more, are exalting themselves over other people. Specifically, those in Judah. This is a text that gives hope to a remnant who are humble. This is a text that should create deep fear in the proud. Proud who abuse others. Proud who say in their heart, look at verse 15, I am and there is no one else. That sounds the same as the person back in chapter 1 who's saying, God will not do good nor will he do ill. I am it. And the Assyrians are going to claim what only God can declare. I am and there is no other. There is no God besides me. But Assyria is taking over God's position there. So this is a text giving hope to a remnant. This is a text that's confronting pride. And this is a text that, look at verse 11, declares that both the humble and the proud are going to end up in a comparable position. What does verse 11 say? Chapter 2, 11. The Lord will be awesome against them, for he will famish all the dust of the earth. 
To him shall bow down each in its place all the lands of the nations. What we're going to see in this text is that whether you're humbled and worshiping God now, or whether you're proud and against God and his people now, in the end, all will be humbled. Some as remnant worshipers, others as forced prisoners of war. But all will bow down. And so there's supposed to be this this sense of awe, ever-present awe, even among the remnant, that this is about God, this is about His kingdom, about His holiness, exalted over all things. And it's because of this that Israel is supposed, Judah is supposed to seek the Lord. The humble of the land are supposed to seek the Lord. Because the day of the Lord is coming for the remnant. Because the day of the Lord is coming against the proud. Because God will indeed exalt Himself above all the lands of the nations. Because of that, seek the Lord. That's the sense of this passage. We'll look at it in more detail and then add into it the specific words against Judah next week. Not a normal week, but a necessary week. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you that you're our hope. You hold the human heart. You hold ours. You alone can keep us from stumbling. And so we declare, in this room, we declare, keep us, O God. Help us, O God. May we fear you rightly. Work in us what is pleasing in your sight. We're asking you to do it. If we don't abide in Christ, we will not bear fruit. So keep us in the vine. Place us in the vine. Thank you for the hope of the remnant. Thank you for the seriousness with which you take sin. For those of us who have been deeply wounded by others' sin, it gives us rest to know that vengeance is yours, declares the Lord. I pray that you would be working in all of us. How desperately all of us here need rising encounters with your mercy. To marvel at your majesty. To take seriously our sin. And to savor savor our Savior. Please, Lord, burn away the dross and make us more pure for the sake of your Son, for the glory of Jesus, for the advancement of your gospel in this very dark world, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi. Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. 
For more information on Dr. Deroshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.